You are listening to the Just Powers podcast, a series devoted to supporting and disseminating the work of researchers, activists, artists, and theorists that provide conceptual tools for imagining feminist and decolonial energy transition for more livable futures for all. Series two of the Just Powers podcast was recorded at Village Sound Studio in Halifax, Nova Scotia, located on traditional Mi'kmaq territory, and was made possible by support from Future Energy Systems Canada First Research Excellence Fund, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada funding, and the Cool Institute of Advanced Study. Today we will be reading Amateur Video and the Challenge for Change by Dr. Janine Marchessault. This text is included in the edited collection Challenge for Change, edited by Thomas Waugh, Michael Brenda Baker, and Ezra Winton, and published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2016. The collection offers an examination of the radical politics and cinema of the legendary documentary film program Challenge for Change, Société Nouvelle, which ran from 1967 to 1980 and produced films in both French and English, challenging audiences, subjects, and filmmakers to confront sexism, poverty, and marginalization in the hope of developing community as well as political awareness and empowerment. Here, Dr. Marchessault returns to an essay she wrote in the early 1990s in order to offer a critical perspective on one aspect of Challenge for Change, namely the way the program underplayed structures of power by emphasizing the immediate and seemingly unmediated nature of communication forms that were being animated by the NFB filmmakers involved in the project at the time. Dr. Janine Marchessault is Professor of Cinema and Media Studies in the Department of Cinema and Media Arts at York University, where she also held the Canada Research Chair in Art, Digital Media and Globalization from 2003 to 2013. Dr. Marchessault's main fields of research are ecologies of media and mediation, suburban cultures, the works of Marshall McLuhan, contemporary art exhibitions, Expo 67, artists' cultures, new media technologies, media archives, and issues around cities and sustainability. This essay was written in the early 1990s, when the effects of the internet and the rise of digital culture were barely visible. Would a different essay have been written today? No. And of course, yes. My chapter offers a critical perspective on one aspect of Challenge for Change, the way the program underplayed structures of power by emphasizing the immediate and seemingly unmediated nature of the forms of communication that were being animated by the National Film Board filmmakers involved in the project. The technology of video in particular was employed as a simple recording device, or mirror, that enabled people to speak to each other, to have a voice, to have access to the means of production. There was, the essay argues, a lack of critical reflexivity on the part of the NFB filmmakers in terms of the overall government involvement in the project and in controlling its potential impact. This lack is a serious shortcoming and can be seen to have sown the seeds of the program's demise. This critique is by no means intended to underestimate the extraordinary nature of this experiment in all its diverse articulations as a landmark moment in the history of social and media activism. Nevertheless, I remain convinced that the liberal ideology underpinning the project obscured the political economic structure that enabled and defined access for communities and the material complexity of communication. This becomes evident when we examine the failure of the project to set up a structure for any kind of sustained connection to cable television 
or to other circuits of distribution. In the end, I maintain that the project instituted access without agency, or put another way, the age-old Canadian problem, production without distribution. While we cannot deny the excitement that many participants must have felt in learning to use different media for the first time, and in viewing new kinds of community communication, any discussion of the project must be tempered by an awareness of its limitations. Contemporary incarnations of challenge for change's aspiration to embed media in marginalized communities have both been inspired by the NFB's innovative fostering of community media and been carried out with a more developed critical acumen. Challenge for change needs to be situated within an archaeology of the media radicalism of the 1960s, which includes the solipsistic process-oriented films of Andy Warhol alongside the McLuhan-esque visions of media democracy found at Expo 67, the multi-screen architecture of the NFB's In the Labyrinth project, which Colin Lowe had conceptualized in the early 1960s, is perhaps the ultimate expression of this optimism. From this perspective, we can see that Challenge for Change's experiments with media democracy and social justice activism are important precursors to the DIY aesthetic and the networked cultures of digital media around the world. Such networks are grounded in localized circuits of communication and action that in turn have a global effect. In the context of networked, locative, and distributed media, we can appreciate the importance of the feedback loop that was the basis of the Challenge for Change methodology. Although the critique of liberal ideology found in this chapter continues to be a vital one, the very logic of the feedback loop encompasses a conceptualization of production as always already intrinsically tied to consumption and circulation. That is, as Walter Benjamin put it in 1934, the use of the apparatus in this manner proposes the, quote, author as producer, end quote, which is then the challenge for change. Once the dispossessed and powerless have access to the means of information, they can no longer be misled by establishment bullshit. And that is in itself a revolution. 1967 was an important year for Canada as the centennial celebration of Confederation, Expo 67 in Montreal, saw the convergence of technology and nationalism as never before. IMAX, the largest screen in the world, could, we were told, only have been invented in Canada. The spectacular five-screen cinematic feat devised by the National Film Board of Canada's Unit B epitomized the image of nationhood, technological mastery, natural abundance, and an open, multi-accented, democratic participation. Its theme in the Unit B tradition was the wonder of human life. Cognitive and technological development were harmoniously synchronized in a symphony dedicated to McLuhan's favorite metaphor, the labyrinth. The United Nations theme of the fair, Terre des Hommes, Man and His World, announced official bilingualism and the multicultural Canada in a multinational world promoted by the Liberal government. 1967 also saw the birth of a new program at the NFB, Challenge for Change. Initiated with subsidies from seven government departments, the program gained almost instant international recognition. Much like IMAX, 
It reinforced the image of Canada as an advanced democratic nation. The project's aims were simple. Give the disenfranchised and marginal communities of Canada a voice by giving them access to the media, film, and later Super 8, video, and cable television. This was intended to, quote, encourage dialogue and promote social change, unquote, mostly around issues of poverty. By the time the program began to lose momentum, that is, to lose government subsidies owing to fiscal restraint, in the mid-1970s, it had produced hundreds of films and videos and hundreds of hours of unedited, quote-unquote, process videos. Although Challenge for Change defies simple evaluation, there are differences not only between the English and Quebec, Société Nouvelle, versions of the program, but between the various projects within each program, I wish to draw attention to a particular teleology at its core, one that came to dictate the way video was used as a, quote, mirror machine for the people, implementing non-hierarchical forms of authority and consolidating the identity of difference. I am especially interested in the way, quote, media for the people exhibited a highly instrumental view of cultural development. D.B. Jones has pointed out that this view and CFC on the whole reflected the Liberals' twofold policy to democratize and regionalize culture, a strategy largely aimed at integrating the margins into the mainstream of Canadian life. Unit B director Colin Lowe heavily involved in the IMAX sensation, would pioneer the participatory techniques that gained Challenge for Change its reputation as one of the cornerstones of the alternative media movement. The participatory process was conceived as a means to counter both the objectification of earlier ethnographic approaches and the aestheticism of an emerging auteuristic tendency at the NFB, mainly in Quebec. The CFC pilot film, Tanya Ballantyne Tree's The Things I Cannot Change, 1967, lacked an essential political imperative. The cinema verite portrait of a poverty-stricken family in Montreal, while sensitive, only reinforced the hopelessness and futility of the family's situation. Moreover, the family's sense of powerlessness was heightened when, without their being notified, the film was aired on local television. They were subjected to ridicule by neighbors and eventually had to move. So the story goes. In the aftermath of The Things I Cannot Change, an ethical dimension was incorporated into the documentary process. For Lowe and others, the CFC film would seek to, quote, engage the people on the screen as partners in the filmmaking process, end quote. Thus, the aims of the project could no longer be subsumed to the self-expression of an individual director. Turning away from his earlier formal inclinations, Corral, 1954, Universe, 1960, Circle of the Sun, 1961, Lowe resolved to break, quote, the illusion that I can communicate, that I am affecting social change, end quote. Rather than making films about disadvantaged groups, he sought to make film with them. This approach presented an alternative to the paternalistic and authoritarian mandate of Grierson's NFB, quote, to interpret Canada to Canadians and to the rest of the world and to make films in the national interest, end quote, while diminishing sectionalism. 
Challenge for Change would confront the NFB's technocratic elitism, seeking to transform the government-sponsored film into a public platform for quote-unquote the people. Participant Observer The first prototype films were produced in 1967 on Fogo Island, just off the northeast coast of Newfoundland. For longtime CFC worker Dorothy Todd Hainaut, the principles informing what has since been called the, quote, Fogo process, end quote, would be fundamental to the development of, quote, a community process, media by the community, end quote. Lowe's notion of subject participation paralleled the liberal interpretation of cultural development, that is, quote, help them help themselves, end quote, and would play an essential role in the state promotion of community culture in Canada. Unable to sustain their livelihoods owing to the corporatization of the fishing industries, the 5,000 islanders who made up the different communities on Fogo were about to be relocated by the government. Despite their geographical isolation from each other, it was their intention to resist the relocation. To increase communication between the communities and not to impose his own interpretation on their views, needs, and histories, Lowe opted to film interviews with different members from each community. The members not only chose the topics they discussed, but viewed the rushes afterward and could demand the omission of any material that did not properly reflect them. Often, the interviews were screened to other island communities and Lowe would record their reactions, creating a series of verite observational or feedback documents. Refusing to make an overall film about the island, Lowe produced what he calls quote-unquote vertical films. Somewhat akin to the home movie archive, vertical films consisted of one community event, for example, Jim Decker's party at five minutes, an everyday occurrence, for example, the Mercer family at ten minutes, or an interview where one issue was discussed, for example, Tom Best on cooperatives, ten minutes. Editing was kept to a minimum, and intercutting between people on the basis of issues was eliminated altogether. This practice, according to Lowe, functioned to keep the filmmakers' interventions and value judgments to a minimum, facilitating more self-directed community expression and democratic communication. While anthropology's nefarious, quote, participant observation, unquote, seeks to resolve power relations, by positioning the observer inside the field to be investigated, the FOGO process sidestepped power altogether. It inscribed not a self-reflective gaze, one that takes account of the observer's contradictory status of belonging, but a self-reflective observation that eliminated boundaries altogether. Using film, participants could observe their own behavior on the screen a posteriori. Low theorized, that the media, film, and, as we shall see, especially video, could be made to function as a collective mirror, enabling communities, quote, to view themselves, discover their strengths, and bring their ideas to better order, unquote. Thus, what came to matter was not so much the final product, but the use of media, quote, as a spark plug for process, unquote. Aimed at strengthening community communications, the process involved building consensus and advocacy around particular issues. Historically, the participatory approach to documentary filmmaking 
is not a stylistic but an ethical engagement with the process of representation. At the very least, it entails some involvement with and accountability to those lives that were being depicted. It is a mode of gathering information that can produce very different results and is certainly no guarantee of political acumen. As a methodology, it enabled the staged realities of Flaherty's Nanook of the North, 1922, to gain ethnographic currency. Just as it was fundamental to the tenement dwellers' direct address in Edgar Anstey and Arthur Elton's housing problems, 1935. Yet, subject participation in the CFC films became synonymous with an ethical rejection of style in favor of direct speech. Twenty-eight films produced on Fogo embodied a dominant aesthetic trope, or anti-aesthetic, that would come to characterize a majority of CFC films and videos, the talking head or the talking head viewing the talking head. D.B. Jones has commented on this, quote, As if, in the words of Guy Glover, simple quotation were the only guarantee of veracity. Ironically, the self-expression that Grierson had abhorred and which he noticed in some of the board's work when he visited Montreal in 1964, and which Challenge for Change had meant to counteract, was re-emerging. Only it wasn't the filmmakers who were expressing themselves, it was the people. Challenge for Change, which sprang in part as recoil from the aesthetics of self-expression, got rid of aesthetics, but not the self-expression. Unquote. While subject participation was intended to counter the ethnographer's distant gaze, it was being delimited in terms of the filmmaker's detachment from the processes of representation. Video. From 1969 onwards, video became the choice technology for the participatory practice. Not only was it cost-effective, but it could ostensibly provide an automatic, instantaneous and simultaneous record, a mirror machine that needed no operator. Enot recalls, quote, an aspect of the process was bothering us. These people were dependent on our equipment and goodwill, in short, our own power, for access to the instruments of communication. As intermediaries, we were nevertheless cumbersome. If we really believed in people's right to express themselves directly, then we needed to eliminate ourselves from the process and find a way to put the media directly in the hands of citizens. Fortunately, a half-inch portable video called Portapack was released onto the market in 1968." Video redefined the film director's role. No longer an authorial agent, the director became a social animator whose chief function was to provide technical training to select communities. In the late 1960s and early 1970s through the CFC project, several video access centres were set up across Canada, including Videograph, Trinity Square, Metro Media, and Teled, among others, to encourage community culture and communication of which video linked to cable television was a central feature. Indeed, many of these access centres, arguably some of the most productive initiatives of the entire project, continue to exist very constructively as artist-run organizations. Over and again, 
video is reported to have been greeted with tremendous excitement by different communities. The videotape recorder, or VTR, quote, brought the community together, end quote, and the television monitor, even if it was closed circuit, resonated with institutional authority, promising a new form of social communication. Able to transcend the mediated facets of film production, video's technical accessibility enabled citizens, quote, to express themselves directly, end quote. Shattering the traditional hierarchies of power implemented by the interview as a formal structure, community members could employ video to interview themselves. Group discussions were to become the dominant representational paradigm for the democratic communication enabled by video, the disembodied authority behind the camera seemingly absent from the process. VTR Rosedale, from 1970, a film documenting the use of video and the FOGO process in the rural community of Rosedale, Alberta, echoes this enthusiasm. Challenge for Change animator Anton Karch trained the Rosedale Citizens Action Committee to use video with the aim of assessing community needs. The film's soft-spoken female voiceover tells how the citizens interviewed by the committee were able to watch themselves immediately after on the playback monitor. Quote, they were impressed by how clearly they had expressed themselves, end quote. Cut to a town meeting where the edited version of the interviews, which includes watching the playback, is presented to the community and videotaped once again. Here, the utilization of video to implement the FOGO process produces an astounding observational regress, a displacement of the apprehending gaze that screens and deflects relations of power. The modalities of power inherent in the process become less and less tangible as the frame appears to open forever outward. There is no outside, no semiotic interference in the mimetic process upon which identity construction depends. The refracted gaze makes the community, in true Foucauldian fashion, both the subject and the object of knowing. This observational paradigm at once mirrors and obliterates VTR Rosedale's institutional framework. The state-sponsored program becomes a community initiative. Thus, the impression prevails that the communications technology is unregulated. It is merely a recording apparatus servicing the community. While Labyrinth sought to answer the 19th century question to overcome the exclusion of the spectator from the image, the video Portapac promised to overcome the viewer's exclusion from television. The same technological determinism pledged interactivity in the form of an immediate and empowering transport from the mundane, disconnected experience of the everyday to the social nexus of the screen. Fostering processes of equivalency and unification, this engagement would multiply the order of meaning and, as McLuhan theorized, move the world, or at least Canada, towards universal harmony. Yet, the interactivity and participation that video delivered instituted access without agency. It instituted a particular form of self-surveillance rather than transform the actual institutional relations of production and knowledge. If empowerment came from demythologizing the technical and social institutions of television by the very fact that anyone could be on television, that television could be used to make a difference, 
then it also served to reinforce the difference television makes. Video projected television's generalized fantasy of transparency, immediacy, and extension through that contradictory bifurcation of being on TV. And most of the community experiments with video never went beyond this initial positivism, beyond the social reproduction. Community videos produced through Challenge for Change, although emerging from a diversity of communities, tended to look the same. According to producer Boyce Richardson, the problem with Portapac was that its, quote, easy-to-operate, unquote, facade did not encourage anyone to actually learn or experiment with its use. Instead, black and white, quote, glitchy, unquote, images, unfocused and barely edited, were glorified as a, quote, manifestation of honesty and directness, unquote. Videographic reality appeared to have an ontological edge over film. Video, unlike the chemical processing needed for film, was a tape recording able to, quote, feedback, unquote, to mirror the reality of difference directly. In this way, the formal characteristics of community video were delineated in opposition to art and to the mediating subjectivity of the auteur. Video was an antidote to indeterminacy. The more ordinary and transparent, the more authentic. Community video and television were intended, were funded, to provide a document of community experience and need, increasing the internal coherence of the community. Although, quote, process, unquote, video was supposed to work against any finished product, Ultimately, its goal was to bring ideas to better order. The, quote, authentic, unquote, expression of community was made to replicate the instrumental discourses of the state. More often than not, community video was synonymous with the transparency and certainty of public service information. Processing Difference Foucault has encapsulated the power-slash-knowledge problematic in the following way. Block quote. We are subjected to the production of truth through power, and we cannot exercise power except through the production of truth. The equation of community video with public service information is not surprising, since the very cohesion of those community identities, dispossessed, black, aboriginal, working mothers, the welfare class, was constituted by the state in the first place. The institutionalization of cultural difference defines the project of multiculturalism not only to manage and integrate difference, but to make it at once separate and identical. This construction creates a common other whose solidarity is made impossible under the burden of difference. Here, the quote people, unquote, or the quote community, unquote, are defined negatively by exclusion, by the participation, wealth, and access to power that they do not have. John Frau has argued that the reduction of difference to an, quote, antagonistic duality, unquote, or people slash state or community slash society cannot, quote, break the cycle of power because it is never more than its mirror image, unquote. It will only produce, quote, a repetition of the same, unquote, 
as difference. The category of people, Frau maintains, is a, quote, fact of representation rather than an external cause of representation, unquote. Similarly, he rejects the concept of, quote-unquote, the popular because it's theorized in relation to its, quote, singular entity, unquote. The, quote, strategic value, unquote, of these terms is found in the way they maintain dominant perceptions of how cultural space is organized and valued. Quote, the point is to describe this normative function rather than accept it as a given. Challenge for Change sought to enlarge the public sphere to include voices marginalized by and excluded from civic discourse. Certainly, this project was extremely important to the inception and growth of Canada's alternative video culture, both for art and community video production. Yet, to what extent was the culture produced through the program limited to fulfilling a binary conception of, quote, media by the people, unquote? To what degree were established structures of authority recognized and challenged? Infused with the radical aspirations for the new media that characterized the late 1960s, Hans Magnus Enzenberger's landmark essay, Constituents of a Theory of the Media, 1970, proposed a socialist strategy, a cultural revolution, that would do away with, quote, the contractions between producers and consumers, unquote. The, quote, emancipatory potential, unquote, of the media was to be, quote, released from the grips of capitalist production. Correspondingly, the masses needed to organize themselves and use the new productive forces to secure evidence of their daily experiences and draw effective lessons from them. Although sympathetic to Enzenberger's political aims, John Hartley has criticized his proposal for maintaining an implicit distinction between the vanguard intellectual and the, quote, masses. Quote, Enzenberger's notion of the masses is contradictory, wanting them to be active and self-determining, but only if such action is organized along existing political lines to support existing socialist strategies, and only if it is mass. Evidence that populations are not masses and that the new media technologies suffuse popular culture in ways that challenge socialist orthodoxies is dismissed as the result of corporate manipulation, leaving a view of the masses as, by default, passive, depoliticized, and in need of organization. Unquote. Certainly far less radical in its scope than Enzensberger's proposal, Challenge for Change suffers from a similar contradiction. The voice of change must emanate from the community that is, quote, in need of organization, end quote. The participatory process was intended to overcome this contradiction. Yet this process, the FOGO process, the process of enabling a community to come to voice, the process of putting the media directly in the hands of the community, could not challenge an authority that it worked to obscure. Instead, the FOGO process consolidated a version of community identity largely determined by the directive of liberal reform. One of the main criticisms of Challenge for Change has been that it worked to diffuse direct action, to contain and stabilize the potentially explosive effects of difference. 
It is easy to see how CFC is entangled in that web of coercion and consent, technologies of domination and technologies of the self, which define the functioning of power in the liberal democratic state. As Chantal Mouffe has remarked, liberalism continuously denies its own limits in order to maintain political legitimacy, its foundation in civil society. Discourses of access and participation often work to conceal the institutional conditions of access and the political limits of coming to voice. Yet in times of crisis, limits do become apparent. At the height of Challenge for Change in 1970, the Liberal government imposed the War Measures Act on Quebec, arresting citizens without due process and censoring the media to protect the Quebec population from the threats of FLQ, Front de Libération du Québec, terrorism. The video Port-a-Pac was used by the government for the purposes of monitoring and surveillance, purposes that defined its historical usage. Video, Stuart Marshall has underlined, is a product of the information age. It is part of, quote, a vast investment in commercial, military, and managerial technology in a process entirely committed to extending institutional control and efficiency, end quote. Delimiting that concern for, quote, effect rather than meaning, end quote, typical of McLuhan's, quote unquote, electric time, the globalizing processes of the telematic media convert history into information. New information technologies make it difficult to locate institutional assumptions and structures of power because the actual source of a transmission is blurred within the new economy of the user. The emancipatory ambitions of Challenge for Change were circumscribed and contained by this complexity. It is just such a complexity, the thrill of access, that so often precludes us from taking into account the dialogic nature of access and participation. What are we being given access to, and what are we participating in? The People's Authority. While Challenge for Change served as a model for thinking about community television around the world, it was a model that failed in Canada. There are countless reasons for the individual failures in Thunder Bay, Vancouver, Roosevelt Park, and Winnipeg. One impediment rested with CFC's neoliberal interpretation of the media's role in community development, as the following report summarizes. Quote, the emerging pattern, if one examines the generation of projects beginning with FOGO, is that of gradual withdrawal from active social intervention in specific communities to a policy of provision of service and information, end quote. This quote-unquote emerging pattern reflects the technological determinism at the very heart of the program, the ahistorical conflation of new communications technologies with democratic participation. Thus, Cable television was introduced to various communities as a service. The economic and institutional interests that fueled this service were overshadowed by the National Film Board's euphoria of access and participation, a rhetoric supported by the public service history of television in Canada. Although the Canadian Radio, Television, and Telecommunications Commission, the CRTC, in the early 70s encouraged cable companies to open time slots for community programming, only one-third of them actually did. Moreover, cable managers and owners were free to impose restrictions on community productions. Except in Quebec, where community television has enjoyed some success, 
no state funding has ever been made available for community access television. According to Mark Raboy, community broadcasting has remained marginal in Canada because it, quote, was not seen as a new sector to be fully developed so as to meet the needs that could not be filled by either national public broadcasting or commercial private broadcasting. The possibility of community-controlled cable systems, as opposed to community access channels within privately owned systems, was never seriously explored, end quote. While not without problems, the model has been far more successful in the United States, perhaps because the market-driven institutions of television are more readily apparent. National Federation of Local Cable Programmers, founded as an advocacy association for public access and community programming on cable television, has sustained a strong cablecast network. No such organization was ever deemed necessary in Canada. The quote-unquote people harbored a new empiricism for the NFB, an amateur culture whose seeing was without intentionality, a neutral ground of everyday truth, totally transparent and uninformed. Video was the amateur technology par excellence. This might explain why many of the quote-unquote people and the NFB in general, lost interest in making videos, getting involved instead in authoring film. This is also why, until recently, art video and community video have been mutually exclusive terms. Video artists have had to distinguish their work as art, video art, by linking it with the non-utilitarian concerns and institutions of high art in order to procure funding. Video activism, especially around AIDS, challenged this historical distinction. Funding for the arts and subsidies for community culture, the arts and community culture traditionally being separate bodies in Canada, are also being redefined. Agencies are being made to rethink the ideologies that have defined art in modernist terminology and community in terms of development and preservation. The lessons that can be learned from Challenge for Change are tied to the contradictory impulses of liberalism, to the incompatibility of its dominant aims, to guarantee pluralism, individual freedom, while implementing a notion of the common good. The political avant-garde and video makers, perhaps especially, have long been suspicious of those liberal claims that have served to mask the institutional structures of television. In effect, if alternative video production has worked to produce social change, that is, increasing reciprocal understandings, actively producing rather than reflecting meaning, it's not through any notion of the quote-unquote good life, but through a sense of justice, which is precisely where a radical concept like community materializes. Today, your readers were Mary Elizabeth Luca and Azna Adami. Dr. Mary Elizabeth Luca is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto and a digital media producer and director. Azna Adami is an artist, educator, and broadcaster based in Toronto. This podcast is brought to you by Just Powers and was produced by Mary Elizabeth Luca and Jesse Beyer, with sound recording by Luke Batois and location production by Jason McIsaac at Village Sound Studio in Halifax, Nova Scotia, situated on traditional Mi'kmaq territory, and sound editing and mixing 
by Catlin W. Cusick at Sublet Sound, temporarily located on the traditional territory of the Coast Salish people. <laughs>